WRHU is underwritten in part by Christopher Cavallero and ARC Excess and Surplus, LLC. ARC Excess and Surplus is a wholesale insurance brokerage that offers professional liability products and services. Information about ARC is available at arcbrokers.com. That's arcbrokers.com. Oropuro Due Jewelry and Watches underwrites programming on WRHU. Oropuro Due, Cristina and Teddy Matozzo, is located at 1033 Hampstead Turnpike in Franklin Square. WRHU programming is underwritten by The Inn at Fox Hollow, located in Woodbury, New York. The Inn at Fox Hollow is a hotel and also offers catering and event services. The Inn at Fox Hollow is located at 7755 Jericho Turnpike in Woodbury. Information can be found at www.theinnatfoxhollow.com and at 800 291 8090. The Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell supports programming on WRHU Radio Hofstra University. Information about the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell can be found at medicine.hofstra.edu. Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant is proud to support WRHU Radio Hofstra University. Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant is located at 910 Hempstead Turnpike in Franklin Square, four miles west of Hofstra University. Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant menu includes pizza, pasta, and other Italian food specialties in addition to catering. Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant features on-site dining and delivers food. More information about Carmela's Pizzeria and Restaurant of Franklin Square can be found at 516-488-9898 and online at www.pizzafranklinsquare.com. Jim Metzger and the Whitmore Insurance Group Garden City underwrites programming on WRHU. The Lawrence Herbert School of Communication is a proud supporter of WRHU, Radio Hofstra University. Information about the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at hofstra.edu slash Herbert. WRHU programming is underwritten by Chateaubriand Catering in Carl Place, New York. Chateaubriand offers catering and event services. Chateaubriand is located at 440 Old Country Road in Carl Place. Information can be found at www.chateaubriand.com and at 516-334-6125. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio. W-W-R-H-U. Hempstead. You discovered a national association of broadcasters, multiple Marconi award-winning stations. WRHU. Radio Hofstra University. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549.
Good morning. And if you're wondering, why is this an hour early? It's because morning show, back to two hours from 7 to 9. What a time to be alive. You're listening to 88.7 Radio Hofstra University. This is the Monday edition of the Morning Wake Up Call, where we are talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Sibyl Rateau, Alexa Servo, a special guest, and Nick Costanzo. In our first hour, midterms, what's the, what happened? What happened in New York? What happened nationally? There's all discussions about some other interesting topics, particularly as it pertains to college sports. Guys, how are we doing today at 7 a.m.? I'm surprisingly a lot more awake than I thought I was going to be. Yeah, as am I. Like, I feel like I'm just super excited to have our first two hours show. I'm so excited to be here. I don't know. We're making history, like Danny was saying, before the show started. How about you, Nick? How are you? Well, I'm physically here, not necessarily mentally here, but I am excited for the two hours. I will say that. Well, Nick, don't go anywhere because we've got a weather report, so please tell us. All right. What's going on in the sky? Yes, and for today's weather forecast, it is currently a chilly 40 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. And up in the sky, it is sunny. The rest of the day should be 42 degrees with an expected high of 47 degrees during the day and a low of a chilly 37 in the evening. Great. It's going to be freezing today. Oh, yeah. It's finally going to be cold. I remember... I was here yes I was here two days ago and I was like oh it's still gonna be warm because it was really hot over the weekend and then uh, somebody in the office was like nope it's gonna be freezing this week I go oh man here it comes here comes winter get the hot chocolate out get that hot chocolate out thank you so much Nick and with the two hours we have many stories to get to so many in fact but some of them have to I don't want to say hit the cutting room floor we're going to get to them in the opening and maybe come back to them in the second hour if we have updates on them. It's Sabil's five things you need to know with Sabil Rateau. Sabil, what's going on in the world? Okay, so first off, Tupac Shakur's stepfather is to be freed from prison after more than 35 years due to his age and terminal illness. Black Panther Wakanda Forever scored the year's second best opening with $180 million and it's the 13th biggest opening of all time. Um, I'm pretty sure the largest opening this year was Doctor Strange. Um, A shooting at the University of Virginia has left three dead and two injured. King Charles III turned 74 today, so happy happy birthday to him. And the man whose story inspired Steven Spielberg's film, The Terminal, has died at the airport where he lived for 18 years. 18 years, that's crazy, I mean, no wonder why they made a movie about it. Yeah, have you guys seen the movie or no? Not I have not that. seen that one. It's honestly a good one. It has like Tom Hanks. Definitely. Yeah. Recommend. Anything with Tom Hanks. Anything with good. Tom Hanks. <laughs> we we stand anything with Tom Hanks. Thank you, Sibyl. Lex, unfortunately, you do not have a segment this morning. I'm so sorry. You know what? It, it's it's a new show for me this morning, so show. I'm okay. Yeah, you, you got your start on... Uh, our, my Monday show over winter intercession. Oh, wow, you're right. That oh, was a Monday show. Many, many, moon, many moons ago. Yeah, that's crazy. So, that's look, almost a year now. It is almost a year. I think it's been a year, more than a year since you got into the station, right? Actually, yes. a year ago yesterday, I passed my, yesterday or two, three days ago, I passed my final exam that's crazy. for the station. That yeah, is wild. Well, glad you're here. Glad you're all here on this Monday morning. And let's get into first 
first half hour is going to be mostly politics because a lot of things happened over the weekend, not particularly locally, but nationally, too. We'll touch on what happened in New York. So the Democratic Party officially will retain control of the Senate with Catherine Cortez Masto's win over Republican Adam Laxalt in Nevada. Dems now have 50 seats, which means the Georgia runoff is merely to give Kamala Harris a break. Um, another Trump-backed challenger going down has drawn renewed criticism on the former president's activity in races yet again, though he's apparently still set on announcing his candidacy for the presidency tomorrow. Donald Trump really wants to give the Tuesday show a headache. Uh, it's safe to say that Senate rem- the Senate remaining blue is a massive blow to Republicans, but on the House side, It's really close. It's 211-203 last time I checked in favor of Republicans with plenty of races uncalled. Should it flip to the GOP? You know, it would be an expected result. Kevin McCarthy likely the next speaker. But the majority probably won't be higher than 10. Doing very well in New York, actually. The Republicans were able to ride some key races, ride some key candidates in the state. They especially flipped all of Long Island seats red. I know, Alexa, you talked about that on the Wednesday show. But it seems like just across the board, they really didn't cruise to the victory they thought. And I found this quote from Bill Cassidy on AP Newsroom. Here's what he had to say about Republican candidates in the midterms. Those who were most closely aligned with the former president did underperformed. Uh, those who are talking about the future, who had managed their states well, they overperformed. The American people want ideas. They want a future. So that basically, in a nutshell, if you were riding with the pr- former President Trump and you were proliferating election uh, denialism and the false claim that 2020 was stolen, you probably didn't do as hot as, say, if you were a more moderate Republican or maybe you only paid lip service to Trump. I think the perfect example of that would be Ron Johnson. But I want to go around the horn. I want to start with Nick. Uh, what do you think about the, what happened over the weekend with the Senate? Because it seemed like a foregone conclusion once uh, Las Vegas was reporting results in Clark County. Well, many analysts said that Republicans didn't go too in-depth about the issues. They simply said inflation's bad, crime is bad, the president is to blame. But what about taking action, legislators, and bringing up forms of ideas? You had President Biden, Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act. Those were things that were brought up. Republicans said, well, lower taxes and cash bail. Let's lower inflation. But what do you think, Daddy? Was there enough back there, backing for Republicans? Did they have enough things to bounce off on? I feel like they were just bringing up the issues, but not any of the solutions. And maybe that might have made them lower in the results than people have thought. It's a double-edged sword, Nick, because when you're the party in power, you obviously have a chance to screw it up. But you also have the chance to actually make your mark and say what you want about Biden, say what you want about the Democrats. But they have been doing things. You just rattled off like three of their biggest accomplishments. You didn't even mention the gun bill. Um, and there's certainly a, an argument to be made that despite his unpopularity, Biden is remaining an active president. Unlike with President Trump, when he had all three branch, he had all three arms of government under his control with the Republicans. Not much got done. You remember the tax bill, but the health care bill failed miserably. So there wasn't anything like that, because even after Build Back Better really stalled, they eventually got the Inflation Reduction Act through, which was something. So I think that Democrats, you know, they painted Republicans as extremists. We all know they do that. But they also said, you know, we did things. We have 
a record to back up. And the interview we're going to get to later with Russell Berman from The Atlantic, he was saying the same thing, that Democrats had a resume, but Republicans really didn't have a lot to their thoughts to their name. I mean, they had made promises. They clearly want to appeal to the faction of the base that wants to do the, the investigations and just wants to stick it to the liberals, owning the libs. But in a midterm election where Trump loomed large and a lot of his personal branding was taking over races, I don't think that strategy really worked. Alex, I know you've been talking about elections a lot on your show. I want to get your thoughts. Um, So I know we talked a little bit. You mentioned before about how, you know, the Democrats, they, they took Senate. But we did talk a little bit about on my show Wednesday about how having a little bit of I don't want to say controversy, but a little bit like opposing sides could be a good thing with the House uh, taking, you know, leaning more towards the GOP side of things um, because it's a it's a little bit of pushback. Um, and I think it could be good for the country to have that just 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 to to put a little bit of opposing opinions in there. Um at least from the Long Island standpoint, kind of going back to what Nick said earlier about the Republicans didn't really seem to go super in-depth on things, at least locally on Long Island, Long Island flipped to be entirely red. Yeah. All four districts, um, all four New York districts that we discussed, one through four, ended up with a red win. Um, and we discussed that we kind of chalked it up to being that at least on Long Island a lot of the democratic candidates focused mainly on um like human rights issues and women's rights issues um and they didn't really go much farther and i'm not saying everywhere i'm saying long island specifically um republicans really focused more on the issues of inflation uh and and economic standpoint things. Yeah, and the thing is, too, Republican, uh, Republicans did well, I think, also because Long Island, I mean, you guys are from Long Island, so, uh, mm-hmm. Nick, Nick and Alexa, it's kind of a bellwether. You know, it, it flips, it ebbs and flows. I mean, we had Laura Kern, and now we have Bruce Blakeman here in Nassau County. And I think it, you know, given it was a net Republican environment, I think we can all agree on that, that it was an environment that favored Republicans nationwide. But it's just when you are in these razor thin races in Nevada and Pennsylvania, right, and even Georgia, you have to do a little bit more than just ride on the coattails of the economy's bad, the president's unpopular, and the Democrats are, you know, awful. And you can't, you can't really run on that. You need to do a little bit more. And I think to Nick's point, you were absolutely correct. The Republicans didn't do much. And I'm just checking uh, right now it's 212 203 in the house in favor of the republicans the extra seat so now they need 218 to get there and i want to quickly touch on the new york gubernatorial race oh, Kathy Danny, Hochul won. just one thing What's before up? you go on so when it comes to long island and places like nevada you mentioned i just want to say they stayed red because there was a more older population yeah. voting there wasn't a lot of younger people getting out to the polls compared to places like pennsylvania so that's why it also stayed. And remember, Republicans won Republicans, but they didn't win independents because they didn't go too in-depth in the issues. And you yeah. have to win those crucial independents. Mm-hmm. And I want to touch on the governor's race. I want to touch on two governor's races. I want to touch on Florida, obviously, with DeSantis, because I have a lot to say about that. But I also want to touch on New York. And I want to go to you, Sabelle, because 
in New York, it really looked like Lee Zeldin was going to at least make Callie Hochul sweat. And he really did in a way. And it reminded me a lot of the New Jersey governor's race, you know, you and I, native New Jerseyans, <laughs> um, where Jack Chiarelli came within striking distance of a very popular Democrat, Phil Murphy, 2018, 2021, not so much. So I want to get your thoughts. What do you think of the governor's race here in New York? I feel like, I don't know, I wasn't surprised. I feel like a lot of, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I feel like a lot of young people were voting in New York. I feel oh, yeah. like we were very, very vocal about, um, you know, registering to vote um, and things like that. So based on like what I was hearing from other people our age, I feel like Hochul, I wasn't like surprised that she won. Like, I was definitely rooting for it. I don't know about you. Yeah, I mean, Nick and I were talking about it for HVL. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it wasn't going to really be a surprise if she won because there's so many more Democrats in New York than Republicans. Mm -hmm. And Lee Zeldin would have had to win an inordinate amount of independence to actually flip the governorship. And then in Florida, Ron DeSantis single-handedly basically destroyed the Florida Democratic Party. And he won Florida by, I think, 20 points. And, you know, as Bill Cassidy said, the senator from Louisiana, Trump's a huge loser on election night. He he and he's going to just go ahead with his announcement, apparently, anyway, with the Georgia runoff still a thing. And here's the thing about what happened nationally with Republicans, too. It was a battle of funding because you have party infighting between the McConnell establishment wing and the Trump you know, MAGA wing, because McConnell's political action committee cut off funding to certain candidates. The most prominent example is Masters in Arizona, who lost to Mark Kelly. And the Democratic strategy of funding radical primary challengers worked. We have an interview about that airing on tomorrow's show, so stay tuned. Because in places like Maryland and New Hampshire, the candidates that were running were, frankly, extremely far to the right. They did not have electability. I'm thinking... I'm thinking right now of um, Balduck in uh, New Hampshire. Maggie Haberman won easily, but I don't want to pose this to you guys too. You know, I don't think Biden should get too big for his britches because, yeah, they overperformed. But once, as Alexa mentioned, divided government kicks in, questions about his fitness to run will resume. The country is still divided as ever. You see that in the makeup of both chambers. The Senate's going to be a slim majority. The House going to be a slim majority, and Georgia's going to be interesting. And I think. It won't really matter because they don't need the extra seat, but it's going to be interesting to see will Democrats really say, hey, we want that extra seat, or will Republicans rally around not having a total embarrassment of dropping Georgia for the second time in, I think, three years. Um, so I want to go around the horn one more time really quickly. We have two more minutes before we have to get out of this. Final impressions. We'll start with Sabelle on the election. Um, I just feel like abortion was just like, oh, um, yeah, yeah, I feel like that's what all the candidates were really riding on. I also like just to go back, like, I feel like that was a big part of what um, kept uh, Kathy Hochul like pretty much afloat the entire mm -hmm. election. She was the one who ensured, yes, abortion will remain legal in New York. You're like women are safe here, basically. So I, I don't know. I just feel like. Um, Maybe like the overturning of Roe v. Wade, not to like, you know, lighten it, uh, make it sound like any lighter than it was, but I do feel like it was just such a prominent thing that really like uh, promoted certain candidates. Yeah, it was it was a confounding variable for sure. Alexa, mm -hmm. what do you think? I I 100% agree with you. I do think that that was probably the main issue, especially among young voters. Like you said, I think New York did a really good job at getting younger people out. To vote, I voted for the first time in this election. 
Um, and and I think I think that really was a a very big contributing factor. I also think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see what follows now with this divided government and with Trump announcing his presidential campaign tomorrow um, and all the pushback that he's had. He, you know, with with the outlash on DeSantis and how that's going to play out in the next couple of weeks. So interesting indeed. And Nick, my fellow HVL veteran. Yes. Well, back to abortion. It seemed like Republicans underestimated the fact that voters were going to put reproductive rights over the economy, over crime. They thought, well, although that's a serious issue, I'm just going to delegate on it. Whatever the voters want, I'm just going to say I'm going to implement that. But that doesn't work. You have to bring up your own opinion. You have to bring up your own solutions to that issue because it is a hot button issue and it matters just as much as crime and inflation, especially for young voters. And it won on every state referendum it was on, all eight. It did. won. It did. And the other thing, I'll say one more quick, one more thing before we get out of this. It's also that with you, what you mentioned, Nick, and what all of you were talking about in terms of the Republicans' performance, a lot of what they were saying, it, it exists in somewhat of a conservative media echo chamber because you have, they have the wing of the party that is very invested in the MAGA ideology, and then you have the wing of the party who's more inclined to be more of a moderate or an independent who's more concerned about fiscal conservatism. And the fact that that wasn't the main push and they didn't advertise fiscally conservative solutions to the policy problems that we're facing in this country, I think that was the ultimate deciding factor, bringing it full circle with Nick's opening point. But man, what a what an interesting midterm. It really was crazy. It cost me my voice, but it's okay. Um, thank you all for humoring me on that midterm discussion. And don't worry, politics will not end on this show because right now we're going to throw it to Russell Berman. I spoke to him over the weekend about specifically how the midterms will impact Congress, how that div- good old-fashioned divided government will impact Washington and what President Trump will do, and, well, former President Trump will do, and President Biden will do in the coming years. So here's what, here's what Mr. Berman had to say. Wake up your mind. Start your day with Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Weekday mornings, 7 till 9 a.m. Lively talk about Long Island life, national news, and international issues from the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Atlantic staff writer Russell Berman. He's written extensively about political reform, Congress, and policy experiments in cities and states. He previously covered the House of Reps for The Hill and served as a Washington, D.C. correspondent for The New York Sun. Today, we'll be talking about the midterm elections and how those shape Congress for the next two years. Russell, thanks for joining me today. Great to be with you. Great to be with you, too. And I was reading your article in The Atlantic about what Biden has done and hasn't done, or at least hasn't done well so far in his presidency. And I think the fact that Democrats haven't been torn to shreds in this election has been welcome news to the president since he's been battling a lot of popularity in a tough political environment. Talk to me a little bit about the resume Biden and the Dems were bringing into the election and what their better than expected showing means for that. Well, you know, he got a lot done. He got a lot done both in a bipartisan fashion in terms of the infrastructure bill and uh, the CHIPS Act, you know, semiconductor manufacturing. He had a lot done in terms of climate change, certainly in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, lowering drug prices in that same bill that that sort of came in right under the wire with uh, the last minute support of of Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Um, He also made that, that late announcement on student debt relief uh, which, of course, is now you know an issue for the courts. But these, you know, he was able to 
to accomplish, uh, you know, a lot that could appeal both to swing and independent voters in terms of the voters who, who tell pollsters that they want to see Congress and the president act in a bipartisan manner and, and reach across the aisle. Uh, certainly the, the $1 trillion infrastructure bill was the sort of the marquee bipartisan accomplishment of his first two years. And then he got a lot done that that could appeal and probably did appeal to progressives and particularly young voters. And it seemed that young voters uh, turned out last week in a way that was you know not clear that they would. It's still uh, you know they're still sorting through the exit exit poll data, matching that to the voter file to see exactly how strong uh, the the turnout among young voters is. But if it if it appears to be strong, you know then I, I think you can point to the that announcement on the student debt relief. You can point to the action on climate change as a big reason why. And so I think you know abortion, which was not a, a an issue that the president you know acted on, but was it was acted on by the Supreme Court. Certainly that galvanized voters and that will be, uh, you know, probably seen as decisive in, in many regards. But the president's uh, accomplishments from a legislative and executive perspective, I think certainly kept uh, kept Democrats in the game. And what about attacks from Republicans regarding the economy and certain other policy failures from the Biden administration, like the Afghanistan withdrawal? It was definitely a net Republican environment. Why do you think that the president was able to minimize those uh, critiques on his term in office so far? Well, you know, in that regard, it may have had less to do with the current president than the former president, Donald Trump, right? It seems that in the final analysis, voters were very frustrated with the party in power, with Democrats, with President Biden. His approval ratings were still, according to the exit polls, in the, you know, in the low 40s, maybe the mid 40s. But they didn't see, in many cases, the Republicans as as the as an acceptable alternative. Right. And you saw that in some of the big Senate races right in Arizona. You had uh, Blake Masters, who was you know a, a big Trump supporter who lost to uh, Senator Mark Kelly, the president was trying to make this, instead of a referendum on his policies, a choice between Republicans and, and Democrats. And it seems like he succeeded in doing that and, and Democrats were able to at least fight to a, basically a draw. Absolutely, yeah. I think it definitely looks like it would be a draw and ex losing the House was always expected given the environment, but the Senate, and I wanna talk about the Senate because as of this recording, Nevada hasn't been decided. It looks like Clark County may give Masto the win over Trump and Dorsey Laxalt, but we don't know. And But for the sake of argument, let's say that even if they lose Nevada, uh, the Democrats win the Georgia runoff, what does a Democratic Senate mean for the Republicans who expected to flip the chamber and potentially have control of the Senate going forward? Well, you know, it's a big disappointment. Uh, we're we're going to see if there are any re repercussions for, for minority leader uh, uh, Mitch McConnell. Um, there's some talk of whether there'll be a challenge to his leadership um, from a, a substantive perspective. You know, what you'll see if Democrats control the Senate is they'll be able to have two more years of uh, confirming Biden judges and, and helping to reshape the courts that were reshaped uh, by by President Trump during his four years in office. We'll, you know, we'll see if, if there's a Supreme Court uh, vacancy in the next two years. That would be the biggest consequence of a Democratic majority versus a Republican majority in the Senate over the next two years. 
legislatively, it will make a difference on the margins. If, if Republicans control the House, certainly Biden's progressive agenda is still basically dead. But I think uh, on the judicial front is where you would see the biggest difference um, between a Democratic majority in the Senate and a Republican majority. If you're just tuning in, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Atlantic staff writer Russell Berman talking about the midterms. And speaking of the House of Representatives, I'm glad you brought up leadership because there was an ex- expectation that this would be a red wave, at least in some circles, especially in the House that is prone to massive seat losses and gains. As it stands right now, Kevin McCarthy is reportedly having a difficult path to the speakership with the Freedom Caucus withdrawing their support and the majority looking to be slim. How much can the GOP exercise their will in that chamber if there is going to be some internal turmoil about who will actually take the reins? Well, uh, what I can say is I used to be a reporter uh, on in Congress on Capitol Hill, uh, and uh, to be one over the next two years uh, would be very fun, at least from uh, the perspective of the press, because it's frankly going to be chaos. I mean, it, it will be chaos whether or not uh, Repub- uh, Democrats or Republicans have an ultra slim majority. But certainly if Kevin McCarthy uh, manages to be elected speaker with a one or two or three seat majority, you know, we saw when Republicans had a, a healthy majority under Speaker John Boehner and then Speaker Paul Ryan uh, in the last decade, it was the Republican conference was almost impossible to manage uh, between the conservatives and the far right and the Freedom Caucus and the moderates and, and, the, and the establishment Republicans in the middle. And now, you know, with the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene in, in, in Georgia, basically saying that she has to be given a certain amount of power and, and the leverage that just a few you know, hard right Trump loyalists could exert. Um, one, Kevin McCarthy is going to have a difficult job just getting elected speaker. Anybody, frankly, is going to get have a difficult job getting elected speaker if the margins are as small as we think they'll be. And then from there to govern, uh, it will be, you know, the Democrats are going to frankly still have a lot of power. They're going to have to turn to the Democratic Party, whether it's led by Nancy Pelosi or whether it's led by somebody else. They're going to have to turn to them for votes just to keep the government running to it, to raise the debt ceiling um, and to pass, you know, forget the big bills, but just the bills to keep the lights on um, is going to be a challenge. And what about the committees? Uh, Depending on who does win the speakership, do you foresee any certain issues about who leads the committees and who actually dictates the legislative agenda in the House? So the, the again, this is this all comes down to the leverage that the Trump loyalists, right? You know, it's you, you don't really talk about it anymore strictly in liberal, moderate, conservative when it comes to the Republican Party. It's either are you Trump loyalist, are you establishment, are you anti-Trump, which Frankly, there's not that many Republicans elected in the House uh, that will, will remain. I think one, only one who voted for his second impeachment. You know, again, you'll see like on the Oversight Committee, um, is that going to be uh, somebody like Jim Jordan? Um, and if they have a very thin majority, majority, are they going to feel like they have the mandate to conduct the investigations that they have been promising for several months? Are they, you know, they, they've been talking about going after Hunter Biden, going about after members of uh, the Biden cabinet, even potentially impeaching uh, President Biden or members of his cabinet. Well, that it, it was one thing when they're when they were expecting their majority to be, you know, 20 or 30 seats. But if it's one or two or three seats and they know that in 2024 presidential election year, Democrats, you would think uh, historically would have a much better shot at winning back the majority that may restrain and constrain how Republicans and how aggressive they are in the committee level. And speaking of 2024, I think 
the midterm was surprisingly a lot about President Trump, given that he was so active in endorsing candidates. And some of his endorsees won, like Ron Johnson, but others like Dr. Oz and Blake Masters, as you mentioned earlier, they went down in defeat. And Ron DeSantis clearly cementing his place among Republican presidential hopefuls. What do you make of Trump's continued political viability? You touched on it earlier, but I want you to elaborate. What do you think the former president could do even if he wanted to run again? Well, I, I think the first thing to point out is that every time, uh, you know, we in the media or Democrats or even some Republicans have said this is the moment that Republicans are going to turn on President Trump and turn away from President Trump, uh, that moment has only lasted a few weeks or a few months. And now in the aftermath of this uh, this huge disappointment, you do see, you know, more and more Republicans who are saying that they need to move on from President Trump, that, that Ron DeSantis is their guy, that at the very minimum, uh, he, sh- he should think twice about running again in 2024. But the question is, how long will that last? And and Trump has succeeded, frankly, by being such an aggressive, you know, bully in, in, in a certain sense with Republicans. You see that already with reports that uh, his allies are telling Kevin McCarthy that unless Kevin McCarthy uh, essentially endorses Trump in 2024, that he's not going to be able to be elected speaker. And so, you know, we have yet to see how all of this is going to play out. Certainly from a national perspective in a general election, you you find Democrats again in this in this sort of position where they were in 2016, where many of them were rooting for, for Donald Trump to be the nominee on the Republican side because they thought they could beat him. And now again, you're saying, look, it would be bad for the country if Donald Trump uh, was anywhere close to to the presidency in 2024, but it would be a gift to the Democratic Party if the Republicans once again nominated him. Um, and so I think I'm I'm not willing to make any predictions on his political viability because predictions about his viability have proven so uh, so erroneous in the past. If you're just tuning in, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Atlantic staff writer Russell Berman talking about the midterms. And he's always had at least some really influential supporters, whether it's in the Senate or whether it's in the House or whether it's even outside of government, technically, that have always been in his corner. But I do want to ask you one final prediction, Mr. Berman, about the current president, Joe Biden. If we do have divided government in the next two years, how will his posture shift? You know, will he really pull a Bill Clinton and go closer to the middle or will he try and stay adamantly on the left, trying to appease the progressives, but not leave the moderates behind. I think you're, uh, my, I think the best guess is that he's going to try to do what he did in his first two years, which is a little bit of both, right? Rhetorically um, and legislatively, he's going to continue to look for deals to be made with Republicans. He's going to be look, looking for ways to signal to the broader public that he is still that guy that they thought he was and that he used to be. But uh, one, he's still going to be doing a lot to keep the progressives in in line and certainly to keep young voters engaged because they are so crucial to to the Democratic Party's chances in any national election. Um, And you're also going to see him and you saw him even in his first press conference after the election um, last week where he was preemptively essentially drawing red lines with Republicans. Here's what I will not accept, right? So I'm not going to cut Social Security. I'm not going to compromise on on the climate, uh, for example. And you're going to see him draw these contrasts, especially if he's running again in 2024, uh, to try to set up 
you know, the Republican Party, once again, like Democrats always like to do, to paint them as the party of the rich, uh, the party of cutting Social Security and Medicare, um, et cetera. And so I think you're going to see a little bit of both um, over the next two years. And that's assuming that he runs. If he doesn't run uh, in 2024, it's a it's much more uh, harder to predict. Will he run? Yes or no? Yes. Uh, after these election results, um, I think he wanted to run again. And I think uh, that will probably prove the, the deciding factor is that that uh, the Democratic Party did not do as bad as everybody thought they, they did. And so that will give him uh, some some confidence to run again. Once again, that was Atlantic staff writer Russell Berman. We just got wrapped up discussing the midterm elections and how they'll shape Congress for the next two years. Mr. Berman, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 88.7 FM, WRHU. Danny Seville, Alexa, and Nick Costanzo on our first two-hour show in years. Historic day here on the morning show. And also historic because we're going to talk about a film that I have been waiting for for so long, that Alexa's been waiting for for so long, but also the troubled times that the film is being released during. So, disenchanted folks, mark your calendars, November 18th, do not talk to me because I will be fangirling over this film. It is the sequel to the 2007 sleeper hit, Enchanted, starring Amy Adams. It's a Disney movie, and everyone's back. That's the beautiful thing. Amy Adams, James Marsden, Patrick Dempsey, and even Adina Menzel are back. Maya Rudolph joins the cast. Alan Menken and Steven Schwartz are back, so you know the songs are going to be amazing. It looks like the film will take on a darker tone because who doesn't like dark and gritty in today's Hollywood? Um, but I'm just excited. It's to see, obviously, the original followed a animated princess thrown into New York City and you know all the chaos and two, early 2000s Disney hijinks that ensued. No theatrical release, but the original raked in $340 million on a $90 million budget. So, Alexa, I'll let you go first because I know you love this movie. I love this movie. I watched this movie all the time as a kid. So before we get into, like, the demise of Disney+, Plus, <laughs> I just want to, like, like, the fact that you have the entire cast, the entire original cast from the 2007 movie, yep. Enchanted, mm-hmm. is incredible because you see that it's... It's a movie that they loved to film so much. They were willing to come back and do it again. And it's like for me, I was four when that movie came out, four or five years old when that movie came out. And and it was like, I think I watched it like every single day. My parents were so tired of that movie same, when I was a kid. Same. So the fact that there, it's not only the original cast coming back, they're keeping this, because it's like a flipped storyline. I believe from what I kind of have pieced together from the new trailer, like you said, it's a little bit darker, but it's the cartoon world that she used to live in c- coming to the real world. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of flipped from the last movie and and I'm I have I'm so excited. Like I don't even have words. I'm so excited. For you this. are excited. Uh <laughs> Nick, Sabil, do you have any thoughts on Disenchanted? Um, I'm super excited for the movie. I loved it when I was a kid. I I don't think I watched it as much as you, but oh like God, all the time. <laughs> but I did watch it quite a few times. Um, I think it was. I don't know. It's just such a unique Disney movie. It's so iconic, and like I I honestly think this is one of the few instances where like 
um, a sequel this far after like um, the premiere of the first movie, like I think that it's warranted. I think that it's gonna be just as good. Maybe I'm overly optimistic, but Nick, do you have any thoughts about this movie? Well, I've seen bits and pieces uh, of the uh, original. Uh, what? Yeah, I know. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but I think the premise is interesting and definitely entertaining, so I might spend a little bit of time out of my life to go see it instead of watching basketball. Maybe it's a good change <laughs> for once. Right? Yeah, honestly, it's such a timeless movie. I feel like it would be just as good if you watched it like okay. tonight. Yeah, yeah. honestly, <laughs> right, the, the original Enchanted, it's on Disney Plus. There is like nothing in it that you would not understand. It like it was okay. Enchanted was made for kids and I But think, it has adult jokes in it. No, but see, mm-hmm. but that's the thing. You can enjoy the movie as an adult and i think what's so amazing about that is the fact that now this sequel i mean how many kids nowadays know about enchanted i feel like it was kind of swept under the rug it doesn't have like a a land disney world even though it should oh absolutely it doesn't so this sequel is for us like this sequel is for it's the, for the people it's for the college it's, students it's for the who college kids this growing up like i i you can enjoy the adult jokes that you, you know can. they throw in there for the parents. Fair enough. Yeah, and really hard transition, but the non-joke here is that this movie is coming out at a really, really bad time for Disney. Maybe it'll save Disney. Plus. I don't know. I mean, they're hoping Black Panther is going to do that. You mentioned the headlines earlier, so Bill, how uh, well it's doing. Um, but Disney Plus is collapsing in on itself. Here's from what Yahoo Finance wrote about it. Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus lost a combined $1.5 billion in Q4 after losing a billion in Q3. Average revenue per user for Disney Plus also disappointed, dropping to 3.91 versus an estimated 4.29, end quote. And management at Disney said that it expects streaming losses to shrink by about $200 million for the first fiscal quarter of 2023 and before profitability potentially in 2024, end quote. So there are the, and there's there's a picture of Disney stock in this article. I want you guys to take a look at it. A literal nosedive. Mm-hmm. Last week, this the, the Mouse House is struggling, guys. And it's interesting because you hear all this talk about the streaming wars coming to an end because the profits are just not there and that maybe it take needs a second to cool down. I don't know. I think that people are still streaming. I just think people will only go to streaming services when there are actually new things that everyone is watching because there are sleeper hits that people are like oh this show on Netflix is so good or oh this show on uh, Disney Plus is so good right but you can only I remember like when Euphoria was a thing when it was in its second season like everyone was watching it when um, even some other shows on HBO Max like the Lakers Showtime documentary like everyone who knew the Lakers was watching that show but there, I feel like there's not a show right now that everyone is watching, and it's not driving people to the streaming services. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about how Disney's revenue is just collapsing. Because I want to talk yeah. about Disney Plus, though. Why do you think Disney Plus is struggling? Honestly, it makes total sense to me because when Disney Plus came out, like I remember, I was a freshman in college, and it was this wholesome platform. You know, you could rewatch. Um, I remember I rewatched Hannah Montana, Wizards of Waverly Place, Boy Meets World for like the millionth time. And then after that, there wasn't really anything to come back to it for because there wasn't anything new and exciting, especially not for adults. I feel like the last like 
big thing on Disney Plus was WandaVision. I want to say, like, I don't think anything really excited people as much as that yeah. um, since even the other Marvel shows. Even like, Loki, I, yeah. Yeah, I loved Loki and I loved, um, uh, what was the other Marvel uh, show? That Hawkeye, came out? Uh, Winter Soldier. Yeah, yeah. Like, there I, was a couple, yeah. Yeah, like, I watched them, but no one really, it didn't really have as much hype. And like even before that, like now it's you'll have like children's movie, but it gets old, and yeah, it's like it the does. adults are the ones paying for the subscription if people aren't using it. Like yeah, and Netflix is doing a lot of its original stuff, and they're also doing their ad-supported tier now, mm -hmm. and that's something that maybe Disney might do in the future. But Alexa, Nick, any quick thoughts on Disney Plus? Why I think it's exploding? I mean, I kind of echo your thoughts because Disney Plus, as great as it is, is geared more towards kids it's yeah. it's that's there's nothing wrong with that um you know from like an ethical perspective i think like you said for for us we get to see all of the old disney shows that we grew up with that we loved but there's nothing original on there that draws me to that platform like if i'm looking for something to watch netflix is the first thing i open yeah they have you know stranger things was really big for netflix this year it brought in a lot of people but even besides a show like that, they just have small entertaining series and they have some classics on there. Like I just finished watching Gilmore Girls for the first time mm -hmm. um, and that's on Netflix. I, I don't know where I would find that anywhere else. It's super easy to get it on there, but they also have short series. Like right now I'm watching um, that show, that short Netflix series with Kristen Bell, uh, the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. It's like a horror show. Oh, I watched that show. Um, yeah, like, like, but like, they, that's what draws me to Netflix. It's the dramatic, it's the, they have a, an array of documentaries, like crime documentaries. And I watch and Big Mouth like on Netflix. <laughs> See, but even like that, like, it, you're drawn to that. It's yeah. adult comedy, and Disney Plus does not have that. So yeah. Disney Plus's niche is struggling unless they have a really big project like a Star Wars thing or an MCU exactly. thing. Exactly. Not to mention we have more access to something like Netflix and kids, how often are they getting on an iPad or a cell phone or if they have streaming TVs in their room, which I doubt, trying to get onto well, Disney+. Plus. they are going to get us with Enchant Disenchanted. They will get us with that. I agree. Yeah. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Uh, Nick, what do you think? Well, it comes down to if people have time out of their busy schedules to sit down and watch a show. That's what. That's it. That's all. And also, are you are you jumping on bandwagons when they happen? Mm. Do you, I will admit it. I jumped on the Euphoria bandwagon. I started watching when season two came out. I went back, rewatched all of season one. I'm like, I mean, it's not good, but it's certainly it holds my attention. It gets it done. Uh, um, I didn't think it was good. I thought the first season was was better than I've the second season. I've never watched it. I never, I never jumped on that bandwagon. Euphoria, I never. Really? I, I should. I was obsessed since 2019. As soon as it came out, I was hooked. It's not that I don't want to watch it. It's just something else always catches my eye before that But see, does. that you always have it in your periphery, that's the power of having a hit show on a streaming platform. It's that everyone's talking about, like Squid Game. Yeah. Squid Game. I mean, come on. Everybody that, loves that. That was show. a phenomenon. And... I haven't seen anything from Disney Plus that has some, that sort of appeal, and specifically Disney Plus is worried about you know the subscribers and their advertisers because as you mentioned the demographics are not as varied as maybe Netflix or HBO Max, and it's also Hulu and it's ESPN Plus because let's face it if you want to watch sports 
You watch it live. I don't think people are shelling out ESPN Plus subscriptions to watch mid-major college basketball unless you're a real college basketball nut. Right, Nick? Correct. Yeah. So thank you for backing me up. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's an issue of that they're not attracting the right people to, to, to watch. Um, but hopefully Disney Plus is still a thing because I need somewhere to watch Enchanted for my usual five times a year. Um, but I mentioned Black Panther earlier, and you know much has been made about the film, especially its tribute to Chadwick Boseman, and our Mikey Dent has more on this story. Let's take a listen. This is your wake-up call. You're listening to Radio Hofstra University, available worldwide at WRHU.org. Black Panther Wakanda Forever premiered this weekend, and wow, what a film. I went to opening night, and now I'm here to take you through my experience. Fans were out of their minds excited for opening night, to say the least. There was, however, an obvious undertone related to the tragic passing of lead actor Chadwick Boseman. His passing left a multitude of questions about the franchise's direction. Furthermore, fans hoped this film would serve as a heartfelt tribute. Just thinking about the film had some fans emotional. I had a chance to talk with a huge Marvel fan, Joshua Rojas, about his expectations for the movie. I'm definitely going to be having chills for sure. I'm already getting chills right now. I know when I sit down, I'm going to be shaking and all of that. And oh, were the chills felt. Fans left the theater raving about this film. 10 out of 10. If you haven't seen it yet, get in the theaters now. Honestly, the movie did live up to its expectations. It surpassed it, actually. It was a really, really, really well thought out movie. Many are considering the film to be one of Marvel's best. Marvel movies? Number one. This movie is number one. Letitia Wright, who played Shiri, called the movie a tribute to Chadwick. Chadwick Boseman as a person, role model, and actor is immensely missed and will continue to be. I feel like it really represents Chadwick Boseman as a person because, you know, he was always known as a good person. This film displays that grief and perfectly carries on the legacy of the character that he brought to life. It was a really good tribute to Chadwick. really had me emotional. It was very, very emotional for me to watch. It just is really inspiring. For WRHU, I'm Michael Dent. Thank you so much, Michael, for that report about Black Panther, a film that we were talking about earlier. You know, we got to go see. I like the original. I didn't think it was good as it was as good as everyone said. I, I thought it was good. I gave it a solid like seven out of ten. I don't know if you guys feel strongly about Black Panther. I feel so strongly about Black Panther. I absolutely like adored the first movie. It, I don't know, it really had me in my feelings. It was such a beautiful movie. Yeah. I honestly regret not getting to see uh, the second one this weekend. You have time. Yeah, I know I have time, but it's a matter of like spoilers. Like usually for Marvel movies, like I'm on top of it. I watch it maybe not opening night, but opening weekend for sure. So like this is kind of like the first time in forever that I'm kind of like having to dodge spoilers yeah so i don't know if there are any big ones i've been good enough to not even know that yeah. much but i just see yeah. all the clickbaity stuff on snapchat where it's like will smith dressed up as a as a black panther i'm like this is so fake <laughs> <laughs> this is so fake what's up alexa i feel like i'm most intrigued just to see how they go about <clears throat> um like because i am usually on top of things my family is very big in the superhero world both marvel and dc so usually we try to see the movie right away um, this is kind of an exception because we just haven't had the time. But I am super intrigued to see what they end up doing now. Obviously, Chadwick Boseman is gone, um, and how they go about honoring him in the movie. Yeah, well, they clearly had enough material to make a whole second film. And I think I'm I'm putting no 
doubts on the creativity of the team there to continue his his legacy and expand the universe of Black Panther, even though the titular character is no longer in the series. Nick, any closing thoughts on Black Panther? It looks decent, but I've been a bummer today, so I probably won't see it. Aww. I know that's so sad. <laughs> it's horrible. I don't see anything. Negative what? Nick. Wah, I know, right? Wah, what is going on on wah, Monday? Wah. It's still Manic Monday, though. So it's hey, oh, it's still Manic Monday. <laughs> um, enough for movies, though. We did a lot of movie talk today. I want to shift gears to this New York Times article I was reading, and I think we can have an interesting discussion about it. So, I'm not on TikTok, but if y'all are on TikTok, you've probably heard of Olivia Dunn, right? Yeah. yeah you've heard of her? She's a gymnast at Louisiana State, um, blonde. So, and then, and she's also from New Jersey. So, that's something. Um, she's also, according to a name image likeness analysis, she's worth $2 million. That's crazy. $2 million. Oh my goodness. Um, she's earned it through her presence on the platform and her cavalcade of sponsorships to her name. NIL has changed the game. Name image, image likeness, that 2021 ruling really allowed college athletes to make money. Um, but when perusing, as I said, the New York Times, I was reading this article by Kurt Streeter about how on the female side, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of the way they get their money because it's exploring the article explores how athletes use their conventional physical attractiveness as a selling point because Dutton's like a model and and she posts a lot of stuff on TikTok regarding beauty and fashion right and it's distracting or not distracting it's more so divergent from their actual athletic achievements and here are his street here's streeter's words i think they're very poignant quote but the new flood of money and the way many female athletes are attaining it troubles some who have fought for equitable treatment in women's sports and say that it rewards traditional feminine desirability over athletic excellence. And while the female athletes I spoke to said that they were consciously deciding whether to play up or down their sexuality, some observers said the market is dictating that choice. Race and sexual orientation are also critical factors here because most of the top earners are white and straight women. And the strategy that Dunn epitomizes on social media is a profitable one, but you know comes with the fear of catering to a regressive aggressive business model. Alexa, I know you've heard of Dunn. What do you think about this? The thing about her being a quote-unquote famous gymnast, she was famous on TikTok before she yeah, went to Louisiana she was. State. So I think for her, at least it comes down to she was using her resources. Maybe she made the team because she had that name, but I personally have seen a couple videos of her you know, doing her gymnast thing, and I think she's an incredible gymnast. But I do think, you know, the question of whether or not sex sells in, in sports now, um, I, I mean, we talked about this in my ethics class. I think it has a lot to do with, like you said before, race and sexual orientation um, and, and how people portray themselves in the media and to their fans, whether it's ethical or not I don't know but if it's if it's helping them a lot of people see it as a strategy to get themselves in the public eye and and it works and I don't really think there's a right answer because you can do one of two ways you can follow the done model right and then you know you have to deal with the fans who will make suggestive comments and sexualize and objectify you but, or you can do what Haley Jones is doing from Stanford. She's a basketball player, and sh she doesn't really follow that marketing strategy. She's more so concerned with um, 
focusing on herself on the court. She's partnered with Dr. Dre. What she said, and here's her quote from her quote: "You can't go. You can go out. You you can go outside with." You can go outside wearing sweatpants and a puffer jacket and you'll be sexualized. I can be on a podcast and it could just be my voice and I'll feel the same thing. So I think it'll, it will be there no matter what you do or how you present yourself. And obviously, I'm not a woman, so I cannot speak to that. That's why we have female voices on the air today. Um, so, Bill, what do you think about this? Um, I think that it could go either way. I think for her... Well, first of all, people don't really pay attention to women's sports in the way that they pay attention to men's sports. Like, if you want to... You can be successful in the sports industry as a woman, but like people know you, Olivia Dunn. Yeah, if you want people to pay attention to you, you have to do more. Like, it's unfortunate, but it's the way that it is. And if she can do both, if she can both be an influencer on TikTok, honestly, I hadn't really heard about her before. But if she can do that and be an incredible gymnast, then good for her. She's making money. She, she's going to be successful. The thing is, is she didn't get famous because of her yeah gymnastics. Important to reiterate videos that's why i feel like she she kind of built a fan base a very specific fan base on tiktok with you know get ready with me videos and and eventually when she gained enough of a following that blossomed into you know she was in la she's friends with people like bryce hall or um i can't think of josh something i can't think of his last name um but these these guys who are famous on tiktok and and that's where her following is from. So I don't even know if if she's built that this gymnastics career off of TikTok. She built a separate career for herself and got her name out there and then built her gymnastics career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, I feel Yeah, go for it, Sibyl. Sorry. I just feel like it doesn't like I think that that doesn't really matter because like now people will probably pay more attention to her gymnastics career, even though that's not necessarily what she was promoting. And at the end of the day, she's still making like over a million dollars. That's is crazy. Yeah. Honestly, that's she's a success. Our age. Yeah. You don't have to be successful at just like one thing. Like if she's successful as an athlete and successful as a, a, a an influencer, even if those are two separate things, like, I don't know. I just think they're two things. Yeah. And the thing with this article, it went into the history behind uh, body image and femininity, femininity in women's sports, I mean, the swimsuit issue. I think that's the best example of something like that where it's all about present, like the presentability for athletes. My question is, obviously Dunn is a good gymnast and she had her following before she was a gymnast at Louisiana State. But how long will you have to be a good athlete and then also have the attractiveness of someone like Dunn to get an NIL deal. Because, like, from what you guys are saying, imagine if Dunn wasn't a gymnast or she wasn't really that good of a gymnast, she'd probably still make bank, right? Probably. But but let's say she wasn't a good gymnast. Would she get NIL deals from her athletic career on top of what she already did? You know what I'm saying? Like, would, would, would agencies market her even though she's not a star? Haley Jones from Stanford is a basketball star. She's very, very good. But what if, let's say, for the sake of argument, if Olivia Dunn is not a, a star, quote unquote, will they still will they still market her as an athlete? That's my big question. And I don't think it should go that far. You know what I mean? Because that's what NIL deals are for. If Olivia Dunn wants to make her money on her own time and in her own ways as an influencer, that's separate from her athletic career. If she wasn't a good athlete, that's fine. But because she's both, she can fuse the two and then that's the question of is it a regressive way to market female athletes 
Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing about TikTok is like if you have like a compelling enough personality, you don't really have to be like that great at anything else. Like if you're, <laughs> I, I I don't. I can think of several TikTokers. <laughs> yeah, I don't even mean that in like a mean way, but it's like you see people who are mediocre artists. I think this is more like in the artist industry, but like also it could apply I, it to could, this. Yeah, yeah, it could apply to this where like you don't if people like you enough, they, if they like your personality, if you're like cute enough, whatever, you don't have to be like as great at music, at gymnastics for like for this example. But I just think that that's just like an interesting thing about. I think it's specifically TikTok. I don't think it's like that on any other social media app where like because you can show your personality in videos and also your talents in other videos, like the two kind of just, I don't know, do something for each other. Alexa? I mean, I feel like it's kind of a hypothetical question on whether or not she would still be promoted or other athletes like her. Because um, I, I do believe just from what I've seen and from I know she's won a couple of yeah. awards. She is a good gymnast, which is, in my opinion, why she's able to get those sponsorships. If she wasn't a good athlete, would she be marketed as one? I don't know. I think she, we would see her face in other places. Like I know she, um, she did a commercial for athletic wear, like uh, leggings and and sports bras and tank tops and stuff like that. I, I don't know if they necessarily marketed her as a gymnast in that one. Or if it was just like, here's a famous face on TikTok who is very famous with girls her age and younger in the high school, college age. And that's what this company was trying to get to, not necessarily just athletes. Yeah. So I, I think at least for Olivia Dunn, I'm not going to speak for about anybody else. She used her resources. She she you know, made a name for herself on TikTok throughout high school and was able to boost herself to a point where she could make a name for herself in gymnastics. And I think yeah, she did what she needed to do and she accomplished her goals. No, for sure. And I mean, I, I obviously knew who she was before she was actually a gymnast. I didn't even know she was a gymnast for a while. And I think it's it's very serendipitous for her to actually be able to use her athletic prowess to further market herself that's a huge boon to her, and even if she didn't get that opportunity due to the ruling, she would still be a lot of money, as I said. So I think mm -hmm. you're right, Alexa. She used her resources, and and I think you know you're always going to have fans who are creeps, but for the most part, you always focus on the supportive ones, and you do what you want to do. And then for someone like Haley Jones from Stanford, if you don't want to go that route, there are other avenues to pursue, and she's clearly successful. She's also also worth apparently over a million dollars. So. It's not a one-size-fits-all, and the article really made it sound like that, too. It's just that done is the the epitome of it, the ideal of how to like maximize earnings, and it's just yeah. the question of is it is it regressive? Is it focusing on attractiveness over athleticism? And I think it's an interesting question we're going to see as this industry continues to develop, because this is very new. It's You can look at it, too, like in the on the flip side of things. I know we have to wrap up soon, but if you look at SUNY Lee, who won the the gold medal at the Olympics? She's our age as well, and she's she's, a, she's another millionaire too. She yes, she is, but she kind of it, it was a different route. She wasn't famous online. She was famous for her athleticism, and now she's been able to branch out into other aspects of the public eye. She's 
posting on TikTok. She's posting on Instagram. She's she's getting these these brand deals um, that are outside of the sporting industry. And and again, like I said, it, it's using your resources. It's getting your name out there, however you need to. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's like I said, it's going to be <clears throat> interesting to follow as this develops. And I don't think Olivia Dunn's going away anytime soon. Nick, you have a, you have thirty seconds. All right. Well, as long <laughs> I want to get you in. As long as she enjoys what she's doing, if she's happy making money, ignore the bad creeps and just keep doing what you're doing. I think that's saying positive is the best message I have for her. That could not have been worded any better. Thank you, Mr. Costanza. You're welcome. I do my best. And oh my gosh, it's seven fifty nine. Don't go anywhere because morning show has a whole nother hour to play with. We will see you on the flip side of this hour with some more morning show content. Don't go anywhere. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro studio. W-W-R-H-U. Hempstead. You discovered, you discovered. A cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. W-W-R-H-U. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. This is the Monday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. We were talking Long Island Life, national news, and international issues. This is hour two. That's right. We had a whole other hour before. The 7 to 9 is the new time slot for the morning show. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Sibyl Rateau, Alexa Servo, and Nick Costanzo. In this second hour, President Susan Poser of Hofstra joins us. Fox Across America's Jimmy Fallon will join us. And an event in the Cultural Center Theater you won't want to miss. All that and more coming up this hour. We just made history, guys. We did a whole hour before 8 a.m. This is crazy. Daddy, I'm crying. It's kind of literally. a trip to me that it's only 8 a.m. It is a trip. <laughs> the two-hour show is like, it's like fun. This is crazy, though. I have to get used to it. Yeah. Having fun so far? It's a lot of thinking. Having fun so far? Welcome back. To the, <laughs> if, and if you're just, and we got to remember, people are just tuning in. People might not know. But if you're just tuning in, again, morning wake-up call is now 7 to 9. We're in the second hour. Very exciting second hour. Several key guest stars and we're just gonna get straight into things here uh before for those of you who missed future news 12 weatherman nick costanzo give his weather update you'll get another chance to hear it right now so uh nick please uh remind everybody or tell all of our new listeners how are things in the sky all right for your weather forecast it is currently 40 degrees outside of our wrhu studios here at hofstra and up in the sky, the sun keeps on shining bright. The rest of the day should be 42 degrees, with an expected high of 47 degrees during the day, and a low of 37 in the evening. So, stay warm and definitely bundle up. As we said in the first hour, it's going to be a cold one. 
It will. Gonna be a chilly, cold chilly. one. Gonna be a cold one. And uh, it's just, you know, winter's finally here. The, the jig is up. Yep. The jig is up. <laughs> um, and as I mentioned the first in the first hour, we have a lot to get to today. And, you know, in the second hour especially, we have a lot of uh, special guest stars joining us that will that will be priority numero uno and priority, priority numero dos. But there are some international news happening, especially that have been really interesting today. And that's why we have Sibyl. Five things you need to know from Sibyl Barto. Sibyl, take it away. So President Biden is meeting with President with Chinese President Xi today. It took place in Bali ahead of the G20 summit. This is the first time the two leaders have actually met in person. Dolly Parton was awarded $100 million from Jeff Bezos to put to great use. This is for her philanthropy. Authorities in Australia issued a major flood alert after a dam began to spill huge amounts of water. Ukrainian President Zelensky visited the liberated city of Kershaw today and said, we are step by step coming to all coming to all of our country. The White House will host its 19th wedding for Joe Biden's granddaughter, Naomi Biden. This closely follows Tiffany Trump, who recently got married at Mar-a-Lago. Hey, Jeff, I have a philanthropy. Can I have $100 million? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine, oh, to put to good use? Well, I, I can put $100 million to great use if you give me that, Jeff. I mean, it's not going to hurt your net worth, is it? I mean, you're richer beyond anything, any other human besides, I don't know, Mansa Musa. Uh, but th- thank you so much to Bill um, for making me feel like I need to badger Jeff Bezos for money now. I um, always love to hear, I always love to think about how rich that guy is and he can just shell out 100 million like it's a, a penny. Um, and then the, the crazy thing, it's kind of weird how Joe Biden's granddaughter is getting married and then Tiffany Trump is also getting married. It's just yeah. the parallelism. <laughs> it's the both sides. If one side does it, the other side has to do something else. Um, but yeah, uh, we talked a lot about entertainment. We talked a lot about politics. And this is this block, it's going to be a lot more social justice. And there's a lighthearted, uh, this, this could be a movie, Nick. The story it could. Honestly, it could honestly yes. be a movie. So why don't you set the scene and tell us about what this, uh, what your story is about? All right. So a 72-year-old activist named Dorothy Hildebrand pedaled thousands of miles from Sweden to Egypt's Red Sea resort of Sharm el-Sheikh to deliver a simple message. Stop climate change. The trip took Dorothy and her pink bike, which she fondly calls Miss Piggy, more than four months. She crisscrossed Europe and the Middle East until she arrived in Sharm el-Sheikh at the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. Her mission is to raise awareness and urge world leaders gathered at the annual United Nations Climate Conference to take concrete steps to stop climate change. As we all know, greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise, and scientists say the amount of heat-trapping gases needs to be stopped by 2030 to meet temperature-limiting goals of the Paris Climate Accord of 2015. Dorothy's activism and biking, which she documents on social media, is for the children and future generations of the world, she says. A sign on her bike reads, Biking for Future and Peace. Now, I want to know what you guys think about this, because when I ride down the street on my bike, my knees start to cramp up. I can't do it. She traveled (laughs) thousands of miles. Good for her. And if this doesn't bring some alarm bells and show some world leaders, hey, people really do care about this issue. And that's what's up. And she's really going to get in those heads and, and make them think, well, maybe we should think twice. Right? Don't you guys think? 
Just what a feat. Just a little side note that's making me smile a lot. There's pictures of her on this this article that you put in here, and she's wearing a sweatshirt that says 72-year-old grandma biking for the future and for peace. Yes. And that's so cute. She's a trooper. She's adorable. She's adorable, and she's making a big a, a, a big imprint. She's, she's really pushing this message, and she's getting it out there, and I, I think... I, I mean, if anybody is is gonna do it, a seventy two year old grandma is definitely gonna gonna put this idea in people's heads. Climate change is real. I mean, it's you know today is cold, but it, it's it's the middle of November, and and over the weekend we had a seventy degree day. I was mm-hmm. I was in New York City on Saturday, and I was walking around in a tank top. Yeah, it's on bizarre. November twelfth. Yeah, that, we, I feel like it should be snowing soon. I don't. I don't. I don't like that. I mean, I love warm weather, but not in November. And this this is a real issue that a lot of people have not taken seriously because I think it's something that people see it as a future issue. And it's not. It will be a future issue. It, it is a future issue for sure. But it, if, if something's not done now, it's going to be way more catastrophic. So, yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot on this show, like particularly the Monday show, about um, how different climate activists have taken yes. action. <laughs> I say action with qu- quotation marks because we're like we talked about them throwing soup and mashed potatoes and all sorts of things on paintings, very famous paintings and expensive paintings. And I think that this is the most um, wholesome way that I think we've spoken about so far. So thanks for that story. Absolutely. Well, it's positive. They're not throwing the mashed potatoes or the soup at a beautiful painting. You're getting the exercise. You're going across the entire world, essentially. This is awesome. Danny, what what do you think? I know you care about climate change. Let's bill finish. Let's bill finish. Well, if anything, I just hope that this isn't just like starting the conversation where we just say, oh, yeah, right. Climate climate change is bad. Like what's going on with the climate is bad. And then we kind of just move on. Like, I hope that this actually that's been a pattern. Yeah. I hope that this initiates action, because like you were saying, this is a very, very critical time. Like we've been saying that for years. Yes. But like we only have so much time to do as much as we can so that like we have a future. And I just hope that this is that this isn't for nothing my thing is that the climate is going to be it already is but it's going to be a major motivating issue for people around the world especially young people like us i'm pretty sure while it wasn't a foremost issue in the election people were thinking about it right and this woman as you said nick pedaled so far on a bike to you know make her make her cause known you know right so there's this factor of that it's literally the, the future of the planet at stake right people are willing to do a lot for that and people won't tolerate inaction from world leaders the big thing about these giant conferences is that they never really agree or they don't hold themselves accountable to these jo- to these standards right because the Paris climate agreed is accord is a perfect example the United States one of the largest industrial nations in the world is unilaterally pulled out and then Joe Biden put them back in. But the fact remains that there's nothing really holding everybody accountable. If politicians don't want to pursue climate policy, they have a free hand not to. And I think as a, as a united human race, the nations of the world should come together and make a, make, make a general action plan, not based on political incentives, not based on 
financial incentives, but finances based on the uh, incentives based on the planet. And this woman, I applaud her efforts and I applaud you for bringing attention to this, Nick, because it's something that we're going to see a lot more of this. She's the prototype for protesters around the world where things if start heating up, literally start heating up. A lot more people will be angry and it won't be a good sight. People need to start taking action now. I'd say listen to the woman on the bike so you don't listen to the millions of people on the streets. That's wow. That's great. That's true. And she's 72 years old. Guys. I, remarkable. Wow. Good for her. Good for her. And it's so many miles. I mean, how do you even, I can't even fathom it. I can't even go on the treadmill for 10 minutes without <laughs> panting like a dog. It's insane. I can't even walk to campus without like <laughs> being drenched in sweat by the time I get here. Right. Yeah. I, I, do, I will say I do wish that there was more um, news outlets covering this because mm-hmm. as nice as it is to see that it's out there on AP News, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I would like to see her, this story plastered on CNN Fox, New York Times, New York Post, these big, big names so that this story really does get out there. Oh, so we're not a big name? Uh, Okay. (laughs) You know what I mean. You know what I mean. I would like to see this published more so it reaches more people and and more people see the change that's needed. Absolutely. Thank you, Nick, for bringing this to our attention. We won't forget about this one anytime soon. And And this is not about the climate, but there is some interesting research being presented on another topic that has become a fixture in everyone's lives, it's about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Um, workplace climate, if you will. Um, at, to do, at 2.40 today in the Cultural Center Theater, right here at Hofstra, the Center for Race, Culture, and Social Justice will hold their faculty summer research public lecture, and I got a chance to sit down with the faculty member and the student who will present their research. Let's take a listen to what they had to say listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 887-WRHU. The frequency, 88.7 FM. The call letters, WRHU. The website, WRHU.org. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. The Center for Race, Culture, and Social Justice here at Hofstra is located in 203 Roosevelt Hall and is led by Director Dr. Jonathan Lightfoot and Associate Director Dr. Veronica Lippincott. The Center's annual faculty summer research grants are aimed at supporting research, scholarship, and curriculum development focusing on race and social justice. Recipients of these grants deliver a public lecture the following year sharing some of the results of their research. With me today are Dr. Nicholas Salter and PhD student Mariana Garcia, last year's recipients. Later today at 2.40 in the Cultural Center Theater, they'll present their research pertaining to white male and female leadership and Latinx male and female leadership in workplaces. Dr. Salter and Mariana, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having us today. Thank you. Anytime. So my first question is, what was the catalyst for conducting this specific study? And if you want to talk about what the actual study was, feel free. Um, So one of the reasons that this uh, came to light was my interest in the Latinx population in the workplace. Um, It's very understudied currently in IO psychology, and I feel like we need to make our mark. (laughs) Um, And the U.S. demographic populations are changing. And uh, right now, Latinos make up the largest racial ethnic minority, um, or in other words, the largest people of color population. 
Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge uh, this population. As I mentioned, it's not a population that has been written on in the workplace. Um, and we decided to take it up on what are the current perceptions of the Latinx uh, leader population. And we wanted to study the intersection of males and females because there are nuances to we're not uh just male or just female or just latinx or just white um there's definitely an intersection where we there are multiple identities that make us us um and that's kind of how it started do you want to add something dr salter yeah, I mean, I, I love what you said. And the only thing I'd add is just that as scientists, as psychologists, I feel like we have tools to be able to kind of not just shed light on um, these understudied populations, as you mentioned, but actually do something and enact positive social change. And so, like, I think that kind of like we wanted to do something uh, this population because we believe that like as scientists, like we can actually use data to kind of like um, uh, figure out how we can make the world a better place. You guys are scientists. You have the scientific frame of mind. How did you conduct your research? What we did, it was uh, pretty straightforward in some ways, is that uh, we had a, a pool of participants that we uh, got. It was an online study. And we just kind of had them think about when you think about white male leaders, when you think about Latinx female leaders and thinking about um, all the four different groups we were talking about, white male, white female, Latinx male, Latinx female, how do you evaluate them as leaders? What do you think about as a leader? We had a, a, ton, a bunch of different adjectives where we're like, you know, do you think of this leader type as detail oriented? Do you think of them as extroverted? Do you think of them as professional? Um, all sorts of stuff like that. So we just had them rate uh, the one different leader type on all these different adjectives. And then afterwards, we just asked an open-ended question. And we're like, when you answered these questions, when you thought about how you rate this leader, um, uh, what were you thinking? What were some of the things you, that were going through your mind? Just to try to kind of get a peek into like people's ideas, because people have strong opinions about diversity, people have strong opinions about leadership. And so just trying to kind of get an idea. So that's how we conduct our study. Absolutely. And the study found that white male leaders seen as prototypical were broadly viewed less favorably than other leaders. Latinx leaders of both genders, as well as white female leaders were, on the other hand, viewed favorably, though white female leaders had the edge. Can you expand on these results and what they mean? Well, I want to say like, well, you have to come to our, to our talk. <laughs> yes, you do have to. So, for, okay, but as like a preview of a preview of the talk, what are the broad strokes that you could say now that the finer grains you'll elaborate on at the talk? It's not that we're saying that white male leaders were viewed negatively. Um, there is a, a component that we also looked at, which was diversity attitudes. Um, and we wanted to see how that played into how people were rating the leaders themselves. Um, and we're, we think that that might be the driving mechanism as to why uh, we saw these uh, this backlash effect that white male leaders were, were facing. So the more you were pro-diversity, the more likely you would uh unfavorably rate white male leaders. Um, do you want to add to that, Dr. Salter? 
Yeah, yeah, it was it was really interesting and unexpected these results because as as you mentioned Daniel, we found in our study that across the board for pretty much everything we measured, uh white male leaders were seen as the worst leaders. And historically that's not the way that like we see things in research, but also not the way the world works. We kind of know uh, uh that in the working world in the world of leadership that white males are often there's a lot of advantages and they're often kind of seen most positively and so we wanted to try to dive in a bit deeper to kind of figure out what happened did we just happen to get like a weird sample of people um we end up conducting the study twice to see if uh there was some sort of weird sampling issue and it wasn't we found consistent results across the two and so to mariana's point we started wondering is it that people actually do view white males negatively? Is it, we, we certainly hear a lot in like a popular press about this kind of backlash, this pro-diversity movement. Um, was there just kind of a feeling of like people felt like they need to be politically correct and they needed to uh, really like monitor what they say and kind of had to like sound as like diversity friendly as possible. And so to Mariana's point, what we did is we included a measure of how pro or anti just diversity in general you felt. And what we found is that that ended up predicting how people felt about leaders more than actually the type of leader they were in the first place. So like, in other words, when you ask people, do you feel positive about white males? Do you feel positive about Latinx females? Whoever you asked about, that ended up not being what predicted people's ratings. What predicted people's ratings was just how much they like diversity. If they like diversity, they were just automatically pro women and Latinx people. If they didn't like diversity, they were automatically um, anti those folks and pro-white men. It felt a little bit like people were just kind of like walking into these discussions of diversity with preconceived notions. Like they already kind of knew from the start, yes, I like these people. No, I don't like these people. Um, we also had another open-ended question where we just asked them, what do you think about diversity? And we saw a lot of these themes coming up. I think people are kind of walking into discussions about diversity being, you know, kind of already set in their ways, not paying attention to like the specifics of the situation and kind of making blanket generalizations either for or against. And I think that can be kind of problematic. And the rest of that research will definitely be elaborated in the talk. And if you're just tuning in, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Dr. Nicholas Salter and PhD student Mariana Garcia, last year's recipients of the Center for Race, Culture and Social Justice's Faculty Summer Research Grants, today in the Cultural Center at 2.40 p.m., they'll be presenting their research on diversity in the workplace. But moving away from your specific actual research, I want to ask you a question about diversity and inclusion, because diversity and inclusion, those are values that have become ubiquitous in workplaces, at least nominally. What progress do you think still needs to be made when it comes to leadership in that regard? Um, lots of changes still need to happen. Um, I do want to point out that uh, we, we are seeing in organizations that there's a uh, a diversified population in the entry level um, levels of an organization. However, where we're seeing um, issues or problems is when they're trying to get up the ladder. And that first and from entry level to manager seems to be one of the uh, points where women or minorities are facing like this. Um, I can't think of the word right now. Uh, where they're seeing this like a roadblock, like a roadblock. 
where where they can't move forward. And then it makes it a lot harder because then you have less people to choose who your leaders are going to be in the future. So um, I think that that really is one of these issues that need to be addressed in organizations. The world has focused so much on diversity in like recent years and whatnot. And we are seeing progress in representation and, and, and we can talk about kind of inclusion and feeling like you're actually belonging separately, but just kind of like hard numbers, representation, are people filling the seats that are different than white, male, heterosexual, cisgender? Um, we're seeing progress there. But to Mariana's point, the, what we're seeing is that not moving up and not um, it, it, it going from like entry level to entry uh, first line manager, entry uh, middle management, there's less and less people here. And then certainly at the top leadership level. I mean, if you look at like percentages of Fortune 500 CEOs that are women or people of color, it's like single digit pe- uh, number of people. And so we don't see just from like a numbers perspective, we don't see a lot of people in these positions. I think it becomes problematic because entry-level uh, folks, racial minority folks, uh, women, LGBTQ folks, or anyone you want to talk about don't have role models to look up to. They don't have like a role model of like, you know, as a queer person, I want to be a leader, but I don't see any other queer leaders around me. And so like, what do we need to do about this? I argue that um, we need to make sure there's people in those roles and specifically by having um, leadership development programs where people can kind of like, you know, talk to them and kind of make them realize like, listen, this is an achievable goal for you. Um, Resource allocation so that like uh, folks have the resources they can to succeed in their jobs and be able to um, um, move up into leadership positions. This isn't about trying to kind of like give advantages to some groups over others. I'm not kind of like saying like, we need to like make sure there's more uh, women in leadership than men or more people of color than white people. It's just about there are some groups that are starting off already kind of behind other groups. Let's level the playing field so that people can kind of shine with their natural strengths. It's all about starting that conversation. It's all about looking at what we can do better. And part of starting the conversation is obviously your chance to present your research later today. What does it mean to have your research spotlighted by the Center for Race, Culture and Civic Engagement here at Hofstra? Oh, it's it's a wonderful opportunity to, you know, to be acknowledged. First of all, when I found out, I was like, oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> um, but it, it feels good to, you know, have a voice to be able to speak to um, people on Latinx populations. And, you know, again, like I mentioned, it's very understudied in IO psychology. So just making a mark there is, is, it's really, it's really empowering for us, I think. Yeah. I mean, the center is, is doing really cool stuff. It's been doing some cool stuff for a while around just the general issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, Mariana, you mentioned like just getting a voice, these things, the, the world of diversity, equity, inclusion is about, there are some people that are not given a voice, you know, and they're not heard and they're not remembered and they're kind of forgotten and silenced and whatnot. And so having our research spotlighted and being supported, you know, in, in so many ways by the center, it's just very meaningful in so many levels. And beyond your talk later today, is there anywhere that someone can look for your research if they're interested in reading the full report? 
back to us in about uh, a couple months. Um, Mariana, do you want to uh, explain? Uh, so we are waiting. We're in a waiting period for presenting this publication at SIOP, the SIOP conference, um, which happens every April. Um, and it's a space where IO psychologists come together and speak on their research. Um, and we are in the midst of, you know, making some edits and expanding a little bit more on the theory that kind of led our paper. Um, and we're getting ready for publication. Um, so it's TBD right now. But yeah, so the as she, as she said, the uh, we submitted to a conference. Um, we will be hearing back in about a month or so. We'll be submitting to a journal for publication soon. Um, so anyone who's looking for kind of like the full technical um, findings, um, um, TBD, that will be soon. In general, um, if if anybody is interested in seeing more of like the types of work we do, um, just hearing more, um, my research lab that Marianne is a part of is called the Wild Research Lab. And uh, you can check it out online, www.wildresearchlab.com. And we talk about the, on the website, you'll see more information about the research we do and just come some other cool stuff. So that's uh, definitely an area I'd recommend for anyone interested. Well, that's excellent. I uh, hope you guys hear back soon. And once again, that was Dr. Nicholas Salter and PhD student Mariana Garcia, last year's recipients of the Center for Race, Culture, and Social Justice's Faculty Summer Research Grants. They'll present their research pertaining to white male and female leadership and Latinx male and female leadership in workplaces today in the Cultural Center Theater at 2.40 p.m. And once again, the Center for Race, Culture, and Social Justice here at Hofstra is located in 203 Roosevelt Hall and is led by Director Dr. Jonathan Lightfoot and Associate Director Dr. Veronica Lippincott. Dr. Salter and Mariana, thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And you are still listening to 88.7 WRHU, the first two-hour morning wake-up call in a very, very long time. Danny, Sibylla, Alexa, and Nick Costanzo. And it's a celebration. It's a celebration of the show, of what we were able to do here at RHU. What better way to celebrate than to bring in the president of Hofstra University, Dr. Susan Poser, for a quick little chat. Dr. Poser, you're joining us live over air. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, Sybille and I will be asking you a few questions. And the first question I want to ask you is a big thing happening on campus this Wednesday is the Hofstra Fall 2022 Town Hall, which you will be at with some, uh, several other members of administration. Stu government will also be a part of it. So if you want to talk about that, please, please feel free. Well, we're very excited. Um, apparently, this has been going on, was going on for many years, but had to be stopped because of the pandemic. So this is the first town hall since I've been the president of Hofstra, which is now about 15, 16 months. So I'm just excited to hear what's on students' minds and uh, try to answer their questions. Are, are you coming in with anything you definitely want to bring to the campus community's attention? Or just wait, you want to hear what students have to say first? Not particularly. No, I really want to hear what students have to say first. I can put out messages to students anytime I want to, but um, this is a real opportunity for them to ask their questions Absol and let us know what's on their minds. Absolutely. And when it comes to moving away from the town hall for a second, just any initiatives happening on campus that you want to talk about here on the show, any renovations or anything academically? I was taking a look at the strategic plan. We're almost at the end of it because that's in 2018-2023 strategic plan. Uh, any initiatives you want to talk about? Well, we've been doing a lot of thinking about strategic planning. 
Um, and uh, we did the Vision Project last year where we asked all the constituencies across campus what was on their mind and how they thought we should define Hofstra in the future and what our ambitions should be. And we're taking off from that very soon and starting what we're calling a strategic direction uh, initiative. And that is really going out to the faculty uh, and to some extent the students and asking what kinds of new academic programs that they would like to see particularly programs that are interdisciplinary and programs uh, hopefully where we can provide a first-year experience uh, that all students have uh, academically, so a class maybe. And what do you feel like your most important duty is as president of Hofstra? Well, it's an interesting question to ask me this morning um, after we had that accident with Unispan <laughs> on Thursday. So I have to say the first thing I would say is really the safety of the campus. Uh, that's really number one. Uh, but after that, I, I think it's about setting a tone um, and helping to create a feeling of belonging for everybody on the campus and to support the students and the faculty um, and everybody in doing their job because that's really where the work gets done, not by me, but by everybody else on this campus. I wrote these questions before the Unispan uh, crash happened. <laughs> it was crazy. You know, it's crazy. I'm waking up every day, I go to the student center and I'm like, oh wait, I can't go this way. Um, but they're offering shuttles to students who want to cross, cross over from the north side to the south side. Is there any other information that students don't already know from the emails we've gotten? Well, the State Department of Transportation has been incredibly helpful. They are actually lengthening the time to cross the street on the lights, the green lights. So that's going to be a help. We'll have public safety out on Hempstead Turnpike as well. Um, and this will probably be a, several weeks before the Unispan is completely yeah, repaired. Definitely. But I, I did notice the P-Safe presence when you cross and the lights do seem a lot longer. The red light this morning when I was driving in was very, very long. I'm like, oh boy. When am I going to get a chance to go? Um, but that's that's great. And um, what what about your experience here at Hofstra? You've been here for more than a year now. Um, you probably get asked this question a lot. What are you learning about the campus and university still? Or do you think you know everything so far? Well, I certainly don't think I know everything. <laughs> Um, well, you know, it's really a, a wonderful community. I anticipated that uh, from my research and from talking to people before I got here. Um, I'm seeing a huge amount of talent among the faculty, and that's part of our strategic direction is to really go to the faculty and ask them uh, what they think we should, uh, how we should strengthen our programs and what new programs we, sh we should offer. Um, and, you know, I discover new little places on campus all the time. And uh, I was... I toured around a lot, but I'm kind of on my second round now where I can really learn more. It's awesome. And for a lighter question, what's your daily routine? What does a day in the life of President Poser look like? Well, one of the fun things about this job is that there are no two days that are ever the same. <laughs> um, and as, again, we saw on Thursday, uh, sometimes you have uh, all the best laid plans and they all go out the window when something else happens. Uh, so that's really the fun of it. You know, I can mm. tell you I'm a very early riser, so I either exercise or I work in the mornings, starting around 5 a.m. Mm. And um, and then the days are all different. Days are all different. Sometimes you're in the office. Sometimes you're out in the field. Mm. Sometimes I'm, yeah, I belong to several boards uh, on Long Island, uh, and I do a lot of traveling to meet alumni and to do fundraising. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. What is that like? Because... You think university president, sometimes you think, oh, it's a very grounded job in terms of just managing the university, but really you're a community leader on the island. What's it like having a big stake in, especially Nassau County, 
in terms of being a part of those boards and doing a lot of traveling and meeting with alumni from all over the place? Well, it's very exciting. I mean, Hofstra is a very important institution for Long Island and for the state of New York. And, you know, I have great ambitions that we're going to become even more prominent. Uh, and so we need our voices to be heard in terms of economic development and in the business community. Uh, and, of course, we want to also tap the resources of our alumni and, you know, who can help our students and who can support us uh, with their activities on campus, but also with their philanthropy. Um, so what's the goal for yourself uh, that you want to see realized in the next year? A goal for myself for Hofstra? A goal for yourself or for Hofstra? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for Hofstra, as I said, we have a lot of uh, strategic planning that we're doing. Um, we've also introduced a lot of diversity efforts, and so I would really like to see our faculty become more diverse so they start to look a little bit more like our student body. That's uh, one of our big aims. Uh, we're going to open the Science and Innovation Center mm -hmm. in March or April, so that's very exciting, and that's where nursing will be and part of engineering. So there's a lot going on on campus. Mm -hmm. I have a couple rapid-fire questions for you. Okay. Favorite color? Green. green. Why is it green? I should say blue, but it's green. <laughs> no, it's always been green. Did you know Lawrence Herbert's favorite color is green? I did not know that. When I spoke to him last year, he said it was his favorite color is green because it's the color of money. <laughs> I don't know if your reasons well, are exactly the same, but... It's the color of my mother's eyes. It's oh. the color of my eyes. So maybe that's why. Favorite song? Favorite song? Well, I'm a big Dua Lipa fan, as mm -hmm. people know. Really? I've heard. I've heard. So I like levitating. Yeah. I like It's Not My Problem. Um, <laughs> uh Break My Heart, is that what it's called? Something like that? I, I like We're Good. That's one of my favorite Dua Lipa songs. Oh, I don't know that one. Um, I have to listen to that one. My dad's a big Dua Lipa, Dua Lipa fan. But he, for a longer time, he didn't know who Dua Lipa was. She would come on the, he's like, oh, I like this singer. I'm like, dad, it's, you got to learn her name if you like her that much. Um, Actually, I also like Cold Heart, which puts together two of my favorite yes. um, musicians. Oh, yeah. Um, favorite place on campus? I know it's hard to pick just one. Oh, I would say the, um, what is the name of the area that's all green and just really beautiful? The Arboretum. The Arboretum, uh, well, or the quad? Well, the whole campus is an Arboretum, but there's a part where you walk in. Is it the um, Sensory Garden? Maybe the Sensory Garden. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the campus is so beautiful. It's really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. What, when you, have, when you have some free time, what do you like to do to unwind? What are some hobbies? I play the piano. Ooh. So, um, and I do have a goal to learn a particular piece this year. What's the piece? Um, it's a trio mm -hmm. by Franz Schubert, the piano part of it. What is your favorite piece to play right now that you can play? Well, I've just been working on that. Oh, nice. <laughs> Did you play any other, any other instruments? Because I played, I played saxophone when I was a kid, and then in high school, my band director was crazy, so I had to step away from my own mental health. <laughs> Um, yeah, I played a lot of instruments. I played the cello, the flute, and the French horn, but I always played the piano, and I stuck with that. Oh, I've yeah. always wanted to learn how to play the cello. Like, I'm still hoping that maybe eventually yeah. I could. Yeah. It's just a beautiful instrument. It is. Um, when, what do you like, you said you, you're an early riser, and what gets you out of the bed, what gets you out of the bed in your morning? What's your secret? I know some people, for some people it's coffee. For me, it's just sheer willpower. But what do you, how, how do you get out of bed consistently in the morning? How are you a consistent early riser? 
I think it's just genetic or something. I just wake up and I am awake and I'm ready to go in the morning. You know, you don't want to see me at 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night uh, a lot of the time because that's pretty much when I run out of energy. Um, but it's it's just the way I am. I don't I don't try to wake up in the morning. I just wake up and I go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sybil, do you have any rapid fire ones for the president? Um, I don't think I have any. Uh, I don't know. I can't think of one. Uh, blanking out. Um, <laughs> there was the presidential symposium earlier this year. Um, what was your experience like with that? Because I know that's not something we also brought back. Well, um, actually, we created it last oh. year. Oh, cr- it was yeah. part of the inaugural week, and it mm-hmm. went so well, and people enjoyed it. We decided to keep doing it. And, and this year, we did it on sustainability and community. Mm-hmm. And um, as I said, it's one of the things that's made me realize the incredible depth of the faculty here yeah. because the idea of the symposium is that we take a large topic, but then every school um, has some kind of a panel presentation about it. And so you can look at sustainability from a legal point of view. You can look at it from a literature point of view. Obviously, you can look at it from a scientific point of view. Um, and so it was very, very interesting to see the different takes mm. on this. And I think we'll continue to do um, that every September. A great tradition. All right, last question. And this is how we're really going to get to know you. Desert Island. You can bring three things. Well, I don't, usually people do three books, three movies. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do books. You can bring three books to a desert island to read for the rest of your life. What three books are you picking? Oh, my goodness. That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I mean, one thing that's on my mind is I'm going to see the opening of the opera, The Hours, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a wonderful book by Michael Cunningham, yeah. which I've always liked um, very much. Um, oh, I've just read so many books. I was reading a lot of uh, James Baldwin over the past uh, couple of years and enjoyed many of his books, like um, uh, The Fire Inside was a great book. Um, I don't know. There are just so many books. I, I um, yeah, I think yeah. of even about some of the children books, oh, children's yeah. books that I used mm-hmm. to read to my children that I loved. For me, it would be definitely Clockwork Orange, Fight Club, but we don't talk about Fight Club, <laughs> and something by Vonnegut. Right now I'm reading Breakfast of Champions, and I really like it. I, another one I love is Ian McEwan. Mm-hmm. I just haven't read an Ian McEwan for a long time, but I've read most of his books. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very good author. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap up? President Poser. No, thank you very much for having me on the show. And uh, I'm full of admiration for your fourth Marconi. So it's one of my uh, talking points when I'm out and about about what a wonderful station this is. Yeah, fourth Marconi. Things are only looking up for RHU. And thank you so much again, Dr. Poser, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join the show. Thank you. All right. Well, don't go anywhere, folks, because we have Jimmy Fallon from Fox Fox America joining us via phone soon. But first, heartbreak anniversary. If I give you, I'm listening to 88.7 WRHU, a song that I think is very underrated. I'm listening to The Morning Show, as I've said many times over the past two hours. Still crazy to say that. I got a little butterflies. Um, <laughs> 8.45 a.m., 45 past the hour. Danny, Seville, Alexa, and Nick. And just in a couple minutes, we'll be joined by Jimmy Fallon from Fox Across America. And But let's just quick little debrief. President Poser was in the studio. She is so sweet. She is so sweet. She yeah, is. I don't think I ever like had a full conversation with her before. I think like maybe in like passing. Yeah, and I'll admit like I didn't have that many questions prepared, but I and I all that stuff about like the rapid fire stuff that was just stuff I was just genuinely curious about. I right. wanted to know a little bit more about her. 
you know um i like that her favorite color is green because yeah. that's my favorite color nice and her reasoning is very similar to mine my eyes are green so mm-hmm. i think it kind of just maybe it's a correlation yeah you're like president poser in that regard i guess so. you her and lawrence herbert Ah, look at all that. All greenies. Me up there with the big dogs. Nick, what do you think about <laughs> President Poser's uh, appearance? She's very chill, very sweet, and she did really give great insight into everything going on at Hofstra University, so it was a pleasure. She's sure. a great face for Hofstra. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad to have her on the show. I did not think that would actually happen. I emailed her office, I think, f- three or four weeks ago, preparing for this, so... The payoff was great. The payoff was mm-hmm. fantastic. And I'm just I'm just really blessed to have that opportunity on our first two hour show to get a chance to speak to the president of Hofstra University. Um does it I, I think it's great that she knows the piano too. That's really cool. That is cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was I was she seems like a very well rounded individual and, and it's very nice to see. I'm gonna keep tabs on that piece she's learning. Hopefully I'll make. I'll ask her next time I see her. Hey, did you learn it yet? <laughs> did you Did you get it down? Um, but yeah, but moving on from one guest star to another. Uh, hopefully, he's in his office by now. Uh, it's Jimmy Fallon from Fox Cross America, who I met when I was interning at Fox Fox News Radio. Um, he hold, his show Fox Cross America is in the afternoon for three hours. So now he, he a mul- another multi hour radio show. Can you believe that morning show is a multi hour show now? You're, you are so excited. I am milking it. I am milking it. I can, I'm milking the cow till I can't make the, milk the cow anymore. But um, enough about us. It's time to talk to Jimmy. Jimmy, hopefully you're in your office by now. If you are, say you are. <laughs> hey, everybody. Hey, Hello. Jimmy. Nice. Fox News headquarters. You know what happened? What happened? I, didn't, I, I got into the building today. And I haven't been here because I was in Texas. And, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of, like, middle fingers and protesters you have to run through to get into the building every morning. Yeah. And because they haven't seen me in a week, there were some, like, extra middle fingers and stuff, so I apologize. But I'm here now, oh, good. properly chastised and ready to rumble. Yeah, glad you're with us, Jimmy. Um, so I guess the first question I have for you is, you know, every everybody in the media has been talking about it, the midterms finally winding down, Democrats keep the Senate, Republicans are probably going to get the house but a slimmer majority than they thought just you know what are your what are your initial reactions to what happened on tuesday and beyond well i think um the calculus by both the democrats and the republicans was way off and what i mean by that is you know internally the democrats did not think they were going to be as successful as they were uh the republicans certainly thought they were going to be more successful than they were which is why there's a little bit of like a role reversal in the morning after. You know, all the Republicans are fighting over whether it was Trump's fault or McConnell's fault. And the Democrats with a straight face are now talking about Biden running in 2024. And I think the Democrats have a vendetta against sign language interpreters. I have two that work in my family. And uh, I'm always asking them, like, what would you do if you were doing a Biden speech? Because he makes up words. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't know. Like, I, you know, Joe Biden is the only guy I've ever seen make a sign language interpreter shrug because he's not out always speaking English. So I don't know. The idea that he could run in 2024 seems a little preposterous. But I think in this immediate fallout, the takeaway was Democrats did better than we thought. Republicans did worse. And I think if you're objectively speaking, you should be a little frustrated by how long it's taking to count votes. Because, you know, in states with 29 million people like Florida and Texas, they count all the votes in one day. 
in states like Nevada, with 7 million voters, we're going on to like week five, you know, whatever it is, day five, day six. And uh, that seems a little egregious. And I don't think either party is comfortable losing in that fashion, meaning if this is a Republican state and the Democrats held an early lead, but now we were on our sixth day of counting and the Republican had pulled into the lead, I think the Democrats would be upset, and I think rightfully so. So I'm hoping, if anything, the silver lining to this whole midterm food fight is that we collectively invest in speeding up the count process. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And Nick Costanzo, big fan of yours, Jibby. And oh, I, man. <laughs> big fan. I've never admit that if you get pulled over by a cop. <laughs> like, yeah, this guy's drunk. <laughs> no, I, I, I love what you do, but I, I got to ask. So you have your radio show, you go on TV, and you definitely have the best of both worlds. So what's different about each medium and really how you present yourself? Um, well, I think radio is better because you have more time with the guest. So you can really showcase their personality and dig into the topic a little bit deeper because you're not as, you're not under the same time constraints in TV. Like I'm coming up on America's newsroom today at 1040 on the East coast. And those are very tight hits, four minutes, five hits, four minutes, five minutes. So it's, what do you got? Why do you got it? All right, get out of here. we got another guy coming up. So I enjoy the latitude, conversational latitude of radio more. Uh, but TV's better for me because it kind of forces me to stop eating and drinking at some point on the weekend. You know, in radio, I can look like a before model, and it really isn't going to affect the reception of my show. But in TV, there's only so many Twinkies they can watch you eat on the set before they change the channel. <laughs> uh, but going off that, in terms of your radio show, Fox Across America, how do you, how do you prepare? Because you, you said you have more time, and it's a lot more flexible. It's a longer show. You really have a lot more, uh, you know, you're, you're the main guy. How do you prepare for Fox Across America every day? It's really weird, but, you know, I spent a lot of time driving a taxi in New York City. And on my radio show, I kind of prioritized political discourse the way it went down in my cab, which is everybody got in and we were kind of under the understanding that we were in this together. Because, like, in a taxi, we're in the same traffic jam. We're trying to get to the same destination. So there's kind of this mutual respect for each other's existence that kind of spills into the way I do my talk show. Like I open my talk show every day and I say, hey, I'm not an activist. I'm a talk show host. So you can be a Republican on my show. You can be a Democrat. Just don't be a beep. And we beep out, you know, whatever you think the bad word happens to be. Because I think if you looked around the country right now, you know, we don't need more Republicans or less Democrats. We just need less jerks, less jerks, you know. And if, uh, you know, people could agree to disagree, Instead of being like, well, you don't agree with me, so you should be banned or ruined or you're not a person, I think we can start to make progress. Because right now, it's still a little too toxic. Like, politics is like a Real Housewives episode, except no one's throwing wine at each other because they don't want to get rid of the booze. Yeah, and I, I want to ask about Gutfeld. I know you're on there quite a lot, and it's been in the news on occasion, and it's, a, it's emerging as a new force in late night. Uh, definitely with a lot of viewership, but what makes it different, and why do so many people watch the show? Um, I think because it doesn't take itself seriously. I think that's Greg's superpower, is the other late-night shows became activists masquerading as comedians during the Trump era. And if you go and watch a Colbert episode, you know, 90% of the show is devoted to just bashing Trump, bashing Republicans, which comedy is a trap door. And what that means is when you tell the joke, the viewer's feet 
need to be stepping over the trap door. There's an element of surprise. Trap door opens, you fall down the hole. But there's no element of surprise to anything Colbert does because you always know he's going after Trump. You always know he's going after Republicans. And I think relinquishing that bipartisan element of surprise really drove away the audience for those shows. So, like, right now, when we do Gutfeld, it blows my mind. It's the highest-rated late-night show in the country. So as a kid who grew up watching Letterman or watching The Tonight Show, it's so insane to me that I'm on a show that's rated higher than what I grew up worshiping. But I don't think it's as much of a testament to us as it is a testament to what they've done wrong. Meaning we do one thing right. The show's pretty funny most nights, and we make fun of ourselves like crazy. Because comedians, were clowns. We're not supposed to be alpha tough guys. We're not supposed to be steering our democracy. And I think social media has given everybody this like staggering sense of self-importance where they think their views supersede the views of others. I'm like, dude, we're comedians. We get paid in drink tickets the first two years of our careers. We're clearly not experts on the economy. You know what I'm saying? We're just goofy people. And I think that's what would help those other late night shows. And I think it would help the country as a whole is if they became less partisan and just became more funny. Because one thing you'll hear really quick on Gutfeld is we make fun of each other on the air if we tell a red meat joke. What I mean is if we tell a joke that like trashes the Democrats that we know a Republican audience will love, we'll get a laugh from the audience and then we'll make fun of each other for being like, yeah, duh, that was low hanging fruit. Whereas on the other side, they're just going to keep doing Trump impersonations till there's nobody left to watch except the people being interrogated at Guantanamo Bay by forcing them to watch Colbert. And Jimmy, you clearly wear a lot of hats, you know, whether you're on your show or on as you're going to be on Newsroom or you're going to be on Gutfeld. What advice would you give to aspiring broadcasters like us who may be dipping our toes into multiple mediums and multiple types of shows? Uh huh. The best one in radio is this. You are company. It's very atmospheric. What I mean by that is people get into a car and they hear a voice coming out of the speakers for the first time. And they've got to decide if they can ride along with that voice and hang out. That's your job as a radio guy is to be good company in the car, good company in the office. All good broadcasting is atmospheric. If there's a TV show you like, it's because you like the energy. So it's really more about being cool and being open to everybody as opposed to programming to one political niche. Because there's a lot of people that are going to tune you out immediately because of your views if they run contrary to theirs. But if you can be loose, make fun of yourself, acknowledge that, you know, some of your reasoning could be flawed, it kind of takes the edge off. And I think the next people that are going to break through in broadcasting aren't because they're super Republican or super Democrat. I just think it's going to be because they're super good and super cool. So that would be my advice. Be cool. Don't sell them agitation. Don't try to upset them. Don't try to change the way they think. Just tell, you know, change their listening habits, make them make become a part of their life because you're good company. Well, definitely. Thank you so much for that advice, Jimmy. Uh, again, Jimmy Fallon from Fox Cross America joining us to close out the first two hour morning show in many years. Jimmy, thank you again for joining us this morning. It was a pleasure to speak to you again. It was a high honor. I'm glad we got out of the elevator. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you got out of the elevator. Have a good day on Newsroom. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. And guys, three minutes left in our first two-hour show i'm a little bummed our first two-hour show but our first of many first so. of many you could be bummed for today yeah. but we got to do this again next yeah. week and jimmy and jimmy was good i like i i i met him he's he's very funny he 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 does what we do he's on the radio 
And uh, I think his advice was pretty solid. You know, be cool, just be yourself, and don't try and cater to an audience. Build your audience. I think that's fair to say. Uh, we're building our audience right now. We are. My parents. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, and are your, are your the, parents listening, Alexa? The no? whole family's tuned in oh, as usual. Good. I, don't, I sent my usual morning selfie to the to the family group chat that to let them all know I'm on air. So nice. That's awesome. Well. Um, we're almost out. We're almost done, guys. But it's it's been a great hour, or two hours, really. And I want to go around one more time. Final thoughts, Sibyl. Um, I hope everyone has a very beautiful Monday. Um, we're hoping for good weather, but not too good. Um, Alexa? Um, First, I want to start with saying good luck to Hofstra students finding parking on the south side of campus today since the Unispan is down and uh -oh. nobody wants to cross Hempstead Turnpike. So if you're not already here, good luck with that. Um, but yeah, I want to say, Danny, you've done an amazing job getting the morning show bumped up to two hours. We owe that to you and Mario. Um, and yeah, let's let's finish out the, the semester strong and make it even stronger in the spring. Thank you. And Nick? Absolutely. I thought today was a big success and definitely a lot of fun. Like I said earlier, bundle up. It's going to be cold. And whoever tuned in to listen, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Especially if you were with us for the entire two hours. And if even if you join late, don't fret because morning show's back every day. Some shows will be two hours live. Alexa on Wednesday will be live two hours. Yes. Thursday come back Wednesday. Come back. You'll hear Thursday me. Thursday will be live two hours. Tuesday and Friday will not be live two hours, but the first hour will be morning show content. Again, from Danny's Bill, Alexa, and Nick, have a great rest of your Monday. And remember to listen to the morning wake-up call every day this week from 7 to 9 a.m. If you want to go, then I'll be so lonely. If you leave me, baby, let me down slowly. Let me down, down, let me down, down, let me down, let me down, down, let me down, down, let me down. If you want to go, then I'll be so lonely. If you leave me, baby, let me down slowly. And I can't stop myself from falling. WRHU is underwritten in part by Christopher Cavallero and ARC Excess and Surplus, LLC. ARC Excess and Surplus is a wholesale insurance broker.